Father, thank you this morning for a testimony of your grace that we've already heard, testimony of your grace and salvation that we will hear shortly, and a testimony as to the power of the one who saves and his kingdom authority in the person of Jesus Christ that we will hear of now. Father, there are so many things in this world that distract us from Christ. There are so many things in this season that tempt us away from Christ. Oh, might we be enraptured with Him and with His kingdom and with His authority. And might we be transformed by what we hear, encouraged, bolstered, emboldened, strengthened, equipped to serve the King in this world in which He has left us as His servants. Might we never forget who is King and who is a servant and the privilege of working in His kingdom. Might we this morning also find joy as we think about the nature, not only of the king, but of the kingdom that he is bringing. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In our political process, whenever there is an election, voters want to know before the election, if you're elected, what are you going to do? What will life be like under your leadership? We want to know. Are taxes going to be raised? Are there going to be new liberties under your leadership? Or are you planning to take some of our liberties away? We want to know the candidates' positions on things like abortion and end-of-life issues and gambling and fiscal policies and national defense and gun rights and more. We want to get a glimpse of his leadership abilities and how he will care for his people. Well, the desire to know these things is natural. I suppose all men have always wanted to know these kinds of things about their leaders. And that is certainly true of us today, and it was certainly true in Jesus' day as well. He came some 2,000 years ago as the promised Messiah. That word Messiah means the anointed one. It points to his ability to serve as king of Israel, the one who would sit on the Davidic throne of God. Both he and John asserted that the nation of Israel could have her Messiah if only they would repent. Both of them came with the same message at the beginning of their ministries. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is here. Repent, and you can have your king. What would life in that kingdom look like? In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus begins to unfold some particulars about his kingdom through a series of eight parables. Four of those parables were spoken to the crowds, starting at the beginning of the chapter, 13.1 and 2. That day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him. So he got in a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach, and he spoke many things to them in parables. 
And Matthew records for us at least four parables that he spoke to the crowds on that occasion. And then in verse 36, there's a shift. Did you catch it when I read earlier? Then he left the crowds and went into the house and the disciples came to him. So Jesus moves from a public setting to a private setting, from the crowds to the twelve, and he begins to teach them about the nature of the kingdom as well. And he tells four more parables, this time to the disciples, about the nature of the kingdom of Christ. It's those four parables that we want to look at this morning. And what we're going to find in these parables is reminders of the truth that Jesus Christ is the greatest king of the greatest kingdom. That kingdom is going to be postponed in its timing. It is divine in its source. It is invaluable in its worth. It is relentless in its judgment. And it is essential for spreading. And we can say from this passage this morning, verses 44 to 52, that Jesus has unfolded for us the greatest mysteries of his kingdom. The greatest mysteries of King Jesus' kingdom have been revealed. Things that were held in mystery, things that were held back, things that were not explained in the Old Testament, with the advent of Jesus and with the unfolding of the truth of this chapter, he has begin to t- beginning to tell us more about the nature of the kingdom of the Messiah. Jesus is answering the question, what is your kingdom like? And he reveals in these four parables five characteristics of his kingdom. You're coming as king, Jesus. What's that kingdom like? What kind of ruler will you be? How will we live in that kingdom? What will life in that kingdom be like? Five characteristics of his kingdom. I actually want to back up to chapter 12 to think about this. Because the first thing we need to notice about that kingdom is that the king's kingdom was rejected. It's astounding, really, that the kingdom of Christ could be rejected. In Matthew chapter 3, we have the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry, and we've already alluded to the fact that his message was very simple, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was Jesus' very own message as well. Chapter 4, verse 17 said that that was the very same thing that he said. Jesus is is presented to the nation of Israel as the promised Messiah who would inaugurate his messianic kingdom. Both John and Jesus were clear to say the kingdom is at hand. That is, it is imminent. The king has arrived, the king has arrived to take over his kingdom and to inaugurate his kingdom and bring in his kingdom. The only thing that needs to happen for that kingdom to take place and for that kingdom to be established is for the nation to repent, to repent of their rebellion against God and to turn to their promised Messiah. Both John and Jesus were offering a specific and anticipated kingdom that would fulfill the promises that were made first to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and then reiterated to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, it is said, verse 13, 
He, the Messiah, shall, the king, shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The Davidic king is not just David, but it's a, it's a king that comes out of David that will reign forever. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, and your throne shall be established forever. That's the kingdom that Jesus is promising. That's the kingdom that John the Baptist is asserting has now arrived, is at hand. But it wasn't just a physical kingdom. Certainly it was that. It was a physical kingdom in a physical land, but it was also a spiritual kingdom. It was a kingdom that was a kingdom in the hearts, if you will. John, or excuse me, Jeremiah chapter 31. Verses 31 to 34, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declared the Lord. I will put my law within them, and within their heart I will write it, and they, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again every man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. I will be their God, they will be my, my people. That's kingdom talk. So Jesus is coming to say, I'm setting up the kingdom on this earth, but not only the kingdom on this earth, but also the kingdom in your heart where I'll rule your hearts and you'll be transformed from the inside out. This was a literal offer of a literal kingdom, a genuine offer. Do you want the king? And despite the offer of the messianic kingdom, the kingdom that Israel has always wanted, the kingdom that Israel still wants, Israel rejected the Messiah. They could not have been more clear. Back up one or two pages, chapter 12, verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. And all the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? Is is this the Messiah? This is what the Messiah will do. This this must be the Messiah who is here, who who is not just sovereign over the physical realm, but he is sovereign over the spiritual realm as well, casting out demons. Verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man... Casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. You need to read that and have your heart break. The king has come. And they have not only said, it's not the king. They've said, he's satanic. They could not have been more clear in their rejection. And this is the pivotal point in Jesus' ministry. 
The Pharisees, the religious leaders, have clearly spoken. This is their final word about Christ. It would take some time yet before they would crucify Christ. But the die was cast. There was no turning back. From this point forward, they are relentless in their hatred of Him and their desire to see Him put to death and destroyed. And at this point, Jesus changes His ministry. So previously, He had been speaking plainly, and now He begins speaking in parables. He begins speaking in parables for a couple of reasons. Notice verse 10 of chapter 13. He gives one parable, the parable of the sower and the soils. And this is a change in his ministry, and the disciples are puzzled. So it says in verse 10 of chapter 13, the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? Why are you talking in such a way that it seems like the truth is obscured? And Jesus answered them, To them, to you, excuse me, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them... It has not been granted. Verse 13. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. I want to give you truth. And so I'm talking in parables so that you will understand the truth of the nature of the kingdom of heaven. But I'm also speaking in parables to hide truth. So that those who do not have the truth, who have rejected me, will not have more truth. It will be hidden from them. The messianic kingdom of Jesus was rejected. The kingdom would not be inaugurated, would not be fulfilled at the first advent, but now would come at a later time. This kingdom, now, this kingdom plan, this kingdom proposal for the the promised coming of the Messiah is set on hold. And the Messiah would not come to establish his kingdom at that time, but he would come now at a later time to set up his kingdom. And until that kingdom is established at his second coming, there is what we might call an intermediary age between the two advents. So Jesus came at the first advent, offering his kingdom. It was rejected. He will come at his second advent, not offering, but just initiating. I'm here as king. And in between, there is still growth of people that are identified as his kingdom citizens. So, for instance, we have this in Colossians chapter 1. Paul writes in verse 13, Colossians 1.13, He rescued us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So we are made into kingdom citizens, though the kingdom has not yet been inaugurated officially. And so Jesus in this chapter begins to unfold for the disciples what this kingdom life will be like while we await for the coming of the king to set up his messianic throne. Jesus is revealing, notice verse 13 in this chapter, he is revealing mysteries of this kingdom Excuse me, not the verse 13, but verse 11 in chapter 13. Jesus says to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom. So there are things that you've known about the kingdom from the Old Testament. But there were mysteries, there were things that were hidden. And I am now exposing those things to you 
about what the kingdom is like. So they didn't understand from the Old Testament that there would be two advents of the Messiah. They didn't understand that there would be an offer and a rejection and then a later setting up. They didn't understand that there would be this intermediate period. And what Jesus unfolds for us in this chapter is what it is like to live under the King of Kings in this intermediary period. As we think about the rejection of the Messiah and the horror that that was, we do well as well to be comforted in that the rejection of Christ never means the failure of Christ. Christ didn't fail at his first advent. He will not fail at his second advent. And he is not failing today. I know what the world looks like out there. I live in that same world that you do. And it grieves me. But brother and sister, Jesus Christ is still king. He has not failed. Do not despair. Rejection of the king does not remove the king from the king's throne. He's still the king. A second aspect characteristic of the kingdom, verse 44 The king's kingdom is from heaven. This answers the question, what is the source of the kingdom? This is an interesting phrase, the kingdom of heaven. This phrase, kingdom of heaven, is used 32 times in Scripture. All 32 times it's used in Matthew. You will not find this phrase anywhere except in the book of Matthew. It is entirely a Matthean term, which means it's a Jewish term. It's a term that the nation of Israel should have understood particularly. And the temptation as we think about this term is to think kingdom of heaven. Heaven. And we're thinking this is about what heaven is like. And this is where the kingdom is in heaven. But Jesus is not saying this is where the kingdom is. He is telling us where it is from. Where it originates from. Where it comes from. And its source is in heaven. That is, the creation of the kingdom of Christ is sourced in heaven. It is not an earthly creation. It is a heavenly designed plan. It is not an earthly kingdom with an earthly ruler. It is a plan that was designed in heaven and executed on earth with all of the power and authority of heaven. It's a parallel term, in fact, to the term kingdom of God. Some have attempted to make a distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. I don't think that that distinction is there. I think that the New Testament writers, Matthew, is using them in parallel. For instance, in Matthew 19, he says in verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, when he says again, He's repeating the same truth, just saying it in a different way. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And so in two parallel statements, he uses in one phrase, kingdom of heaven, and the other phrase, the kingdom of God. Matthew would have us to understand that they are the same thing. 
In Matthew chapter 4, we understand that Jesus came preaching the message, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Mark writes it, Mark 1.15, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's the same term. It's the same idea. And what, would, what the, Matthew would have us to understand is that this kingdom is God's plan. It's God's purpose. It's God's work. God has promised it. God has designed it. God will bring it about. Nothing can stand against it because it is God's kingdom. He will fulfill his promise. The kingdom of heaven is not a kingdom that can be subverted, undermined, overthrown, destroyed. It is not an earthly kingdom with an earthly ruler who can be overthrown or unelected. And the four parables that Jesus spoke in private to the disciples, starting in verse 36, explain the nature of this kingdom that comes from heaven and from God. This kingdom, the king's kingdom, is from heaven. The Christ is not coming simply as an earthly ruler. He will rule on earth, but he is coming as a heavenly ruler designed by God, planned by God from the eternal past. Third thing to understand about the king's kingdom is that it is valuable. It is valuable. This answers the question, what is the worth of the kingdom? And the first parable that... Jesus gives to the disciples in private in this house, reads this way, verse 44, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Now, now it seems unusual to us that we might find a treasure like this, but we, we need to remember the times. And uh, in those times, there were no banks, there were no safe deposit boxes, there were, there were no safes that you could buy at the hardware store and, and bury in your house and put your treasures and all of your most valuable possessions in them to protect them from thieves and robbers and fire. And it was not unusual at that time to, for people to go on journeys and not having security systems that they, could, uh, that they could set for ADT to respond to when they left their house. They had to do something with their valuables. And it wasn't always reasonable to take their valuables with them when they went on trips. And think about the fact that in Israel, all people would go at least once annually to Jerusalem. That was the understanding, at least. And so they'd leave their houses. What do you do with your treasures? You bury it. You put it in a secret place where no one can find it, underground. And sometimes when people would take these journeys, they would take their journeys and they would not come back. And maybe their property would go to someone else and then their property would go to someone else and someone else and someone else and then somebody, everybody forgets where's the treasure. And so somebody's bumping along the road in this story. He's obviously looking for something, but it doesn't seem to even indicate that he's particularly looking for treasure, but he's just digging around in a field and he finds treasure. Some have been wrapped around the axle of, well, it seems awfully deceitful that he finds this treasure on land that he doesn't own, and then he goes and buys the land so that he can get the treasure. But he's not two things. One, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is, what would you do if you knew you'd get a treasure? And secondly, he doesn't steal it. In fact, the text is clear. He goes and he buys it. He gives a fair price for it. In fact, I was, I was thinking about that this week. I think he probably gave more than a fair price because it took everything that he had in order to buy it. He sold everything to buy this land legally. Everything he had. And the point that Jesus is making 
is that if you can get into the kingdom of heaven, it's worth giving up everything you have to get in. The second parable, starting in verse 45, parallels the first. Again, similarly, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. Now, now there's a little bit of a difference here. The, the merchant is going and looking. So he's plying his trade. He's doing what he does to, to sustain himself in life and in his living. And so he is intentionally looking for pearls. He's always going to the seaside. He's always got his ear open. Has anybody found any pearls? What kind of pearls have they found? Where have they found them? Etc. He's looking. He's searching. And he hears of one. And he finds one pearl of great value and he went and he sold all that he had now think about that just a moment what might this pearl have been like he sold everything he sold his house his property all of his possessions notice the fact that he's a merchant he has pearls that's his job He sells everything that is in his jewelry business because everything that he already possesses in pearls and jewels pales in comparison in its cumulative value to this one pearl. Sells everything so he can buy one thing. Says one commentator, no cost is too great when it is a matter of gaining the kingdom. The sacrifice of all that a man has is not too much to pay for the kingdom. Whatever you have, if the Lord asks you to sacrifice it, it's worth it for what you get on the other side. And today as well. The kingdom is of Astounding value. Now to say the kingdom is valuable is so understated, I can't even begin to tell you how understated it is. Here's an attempt. In 2016, an unnamed man went to an estate sale, purchased a sketch of a mother and child. It's a charming sketch, don't you think? And he looked at it and thought, I want that. Doesn't that look nice at my house? And the price was reasonable, 30 bucks. So he bought the sketch. He happened to notice before he bought it, the signature at the bottom. Maybe you can see it right there. It's a famous A.D. That's the way Albrecht Dürer signed his paintings. In the 15th and 16th century, he is known as the greatest Renaissance painter in Germany. Now he knew, it's just a print, it's a fake, but it looked good at my house. So he paid the 30 bucks and took it home. He said, in fact, it was just a wonderfully rendered piece of old art. One of the owners of the Agnews Gallery in London heard about the sketch, happened to lay eyes on it, took it back for some careful examination, showed it to some other experts so that they could examine it. And his comment was, 
It was either the greatest forgery I have ever seen or a masterpiece. You can go to London today and for the next 10 days you can still see it in the Agnews Gallery. Sometime after the first of the year it's going to go on sale. They estimate it's going to bring somewhere upwards of $50 million. Not a bad investment. 30 bucks. I wish I could say that what we give up to get in the kingdom is $30 and what we get is $50 million, but even that pales in comparison to what we give. What would you give up to get into the kingdom? Brothers, whatever you have to sell, it's worthwhile. And I am not, please hear me, I am not saying you can buy your way into the kingdom. That is not Jesus' point. But Jesus' point is, when you come into the kingdom, your life's going to change. And the way you were living is not the way you will be living in the kingdom. And whatever you have to give up from the way you were living so that you can live a new way is worth sacrificing no matter what you have to give up. What kinds of things do you have to give up? Sometimes you will give up Life and health. And you will suffer. To that, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, We do not lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary light affliction. That's what we give up. Is producing for us an eternal weight of glory Far beyond all comparison. That's what we get. That's a good trade, brothers. Or maybe, maybe you will have to give up self-righteousness and saying, I can do it my way. I can get into God's good graces my way. More than that, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, I count all things to be loss. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them to be rubbish so that I may gain Christ. I'm no longer living on self-righteousness. That's dead. That's empty. I get Christ. Or maybe, maybe you give up sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. You have to give up sin in order to get Christ, but it's worth it. Whatever you give up, it's worth it to get into the kingdom of Christ. The king's kingdom is immensely valuable. A fourth characteristic of this kingdom, the king's kingdom is for judgment. The first two parables that Jesus gives demonstrate the benefits and the value of the kingdom This parable reveals a warning about the kingdom. 
There's a judgment attached to the kingdom. In fact, this parable is in parallel to the parable of the tares that he told to the crowds. He told that parable to the crowds and he explained that parable. The first thing he did to the disciples, starting in verse 37. And he explains that from verses 37 to 43. And this parable parallels that parable. And what he's telling us is that there is a judgment that's attached to the kingdom. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that is cast into the sea. So it's, it's kind of like a, a seining net. If some of you have been fishing and you know about a seining net, it's a net that's going to be, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 feet long. It's going to be three to four feet high. You're going to have, at least the way I've done it, you have poles attached to the end. Somebody walks out into the water and you do a big loop around. You get the uh, in the water and then you just pull it up to shore. So you net, never get beyond about chest deep in the water and you see what you get when you pull it in. When we pulled it in, I think we had over 200 crabs. It was some fine eating that night, let me tell you. Here, Jesus says they attach this dragnet to the boat. That was another way to do it. You can dump it out the back of the boat and you row the boat, have the boat be pulled by the wind and then that pulls along behind the boat, catches stuff. You pull into shore, pull it up to shore, see what you get. Verse 48, gathered all kinds of fish. When it was filled, verse 48, they drew it up on the beach. They sat down. They gathered the good fish into containers. The bad they threw away. That was pretty typical. Just sorting through what's good eating, what's bad eating. Crab, good. Red snapper, good. I don't know what's a bad fish. I don't know. There's a bad fish out there somewhere, I suppose. Bad eating. Don't want that one. They throw it away. A couple of words that the Greek language uses that are typically used in contrast to each other, good and bad. The word good here is the typical word that you would expect to find, but the word bad is a different word. It's not what you expect to find here. And the word that Jesus uses is it means it's rotten, it's spoiled, it's putrid, it's dead, decaying, dying. It's not just a dead fish. It's not just not a good tasting fish. We would say it's an evil fish. It's a deadly fish. It's a dead that it's a fish that'll kill you if you eat it. It is utterly, absolutely worthless. And they throw them away. Nobody wants to eat that. Nobody wants to get sick. Nobody wants to die. Then Jesus makes the point, verse forty nine. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out from the take out the wicked from among the righteous. And we'll throw them into the furnace of fire. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What Jesus is telling us about the kingdom is right now there are people that are being gathered. There are kingdom citizens that are being made by the king. And these kingdom citizens are living among others who are not kingdom citizens. And at the end of this age in which we now live, before the king comes to set up his millennial throne and rule, there's going to be a judgment. This this same judgment is talked about at the end of Chapter 25, starting in verse 30 to the end of the chapter, the same judgment takes place. In fact, it's the angels there that come. And before you ask the question, hey, what's the deal with the angels? I don't know. The angels are sent and they're called to call out those who are evil. They have part of the process of discipline judgment. The point is not that the angels are involved, but the point is there's a coming judgment. And we look in this world today 
And it feels lonely sometimes, doesn't it? On a Tuesday afternoon or a Thursday morning or a Saturday evening, you look out in the world, you interact with people in this world, and you go, it is, it is unusual to live as a believer. And Jesus would have us understand, just because this world has gone off its rails doesn't mean the king is lost. The king's coming, and he will judge. And he will throw them, verse 50, into the furnace of fire. He will do it. This judgment is inevitable. It is inescapable. There is going to be an evaluation of all men. And those who are wicked, verse 49, will be removed from those who are righteous. So the righteous will stay and enter into the millennial kingdom. The righteous will stay. The ones who are righteous, not on the basis of their own righteousness, because we know no man can be righteous on his own, but they're righteous because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. The wicked will be taken out from among them, and they will be thrown into the furnace of fire. The fire refers to a physical judgment that is unrelenting in its torment. It is a burning of the body in which the body is never consumed. It is a, it is a consumption that even now is taking place and has been, for instance, from the man in Luke chapter 16 that Jesus spoke about has been taking place in his case for over 2,000 years in agony from burning and never burned up. Says one writer, hell is not merely a fate of forever reliving bad memories or of going out into nothingness as many people believe and teach, nor is it a place where sinners will continue their sinning unrestrained and unrebuked. There will be no pleasure at all in hell, not even the perverted pleasure of sin Only it's punishment. And as if that picture furnace of fire is not graphic enough, Jesus says it is the place of the weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not only physical torment, but it's the inner torment. It's the turmoil of the heart, the soul, the anguish that's related to the experience of God's unrelenting wrath. That phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth, is used seven times in the New Testament. Six times it's used by Matthew, and it always has the same impact. Says one commentator, it leaves no doubt about the unhappiness of the final state of the lost. Bitter doesn't begin to cover it. You ever made a decision that a week later or a month later or a year later, you thought about, and it just leaves your stomach in a knot? I have. And you just think, if I could only go back, and there's no going back, and there's no changing the impact of that decision. That's what's going on here in the anguish of soul. Except exponentially worse for all Eternity. This parable is a reminder to the unbeliever that as good as the world is for him at this moment, it will not end well for him if he does not trust Christ. 
And this parable likewise is a reminder for the believer that as bad as this world is, it will end well for us. There's no anguish of soul for those who are righteous and in Christ. There's only joy. Friend, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to hear from this parable that there is a judgment coming. It is inescapable. All men are going to be sorted out either at this judgment or another one. The righteous in Christ get to enjoy His delights for all eternity. The unrighteous and the wicked experience His unrelenting, anguish-filling wrath for all eternity. That's the bad news. The good news is, today you can change that by trusting in Christ. By appealing to Him, would you spare me that wrath and that judgment? There's nothing I can do to save myself. I appeal to you and ask that you would apply your righteousness to me. Friend, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, I cannot compel you with strong enough language that today is a day that you must repent. And if you do not repent and you enter eternity without repenting, you will face His unrelenting wrath. That's part of what it is to be in God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom, the King's kingdom. It is to experience judgment. His kingdom comes with judgment. There's one more characteristic of this kingdom as we think about what life is like before between the first and second advent. And that is the King's kingdom is for spreading In verse 36, Jesus leaves the crowds, goes into the house. The disciples come with him and they say, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. They don't understand. Jesus, would you tell us what's going on? We don't get it. And so Jesus has given them multiple other parables now, four, three more parables. And he asks them and he's explained one of them. And then he asks them, verse 51, have you understood these things? Now do you get it? Do you understand now? the nature of this kingdom. And they simply say yes. And it's notable that Jesus doesn't correct them. Sometimes He corrects them. (laughs) And I think He doesn't correct them here because they really do get it. They really do understand. And those who understand, those who discern what God has revealed about the nature of His kingdom become, as it were, experts in the kingdom. And so Jesus takes that idea in verse 52 and gives a final parable. Jesus said to them, therefore, every scribe, remember the scribes, we talked about this last week, scribes weren't just people who wrote down, copied the Old Testament text, but they were experts in the law. They were the ones that decided this is how to interpret the law. They were the lawyers of the day. And so Jesus says, have you understood? Yes, we understand. Okay, now you're an expert in what the kingdom is. You're like a scribe of the kingdom. And you've become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven, he says. And that means that you are like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. The house, head of the household would have to provide for the rest of the house. And so he brings out of the things he owns to provide for those who are under his care. His wife, his kids, and those who served him in his household. 
Jesus says, that's you. You've got the treasure of this kingdom. You're an expert in the kingdom. You're a scribe of the kingdom. And you bring out of that knowledge treasure of things that are new and old. In other words, there are things that you understood about the kingdom from the Old Testament. And now you have new understanding of what the king and kingdom is like. And you're to disseminate that in the household. Can I just put it in plain terms? It's time to get evangelistic about the king and the kingdom. It's time to tell somebody about the coming king. It's time to tell somebody, sell what you have, give up what you're pursuing and pursue Christ. Because he is more valuable than any treasure you will ever gain. And if you don't, there is a wrath and a judgment that is coming that is unrelenting. And it's my joy to tell you this good news. Simply said, there are evangelistic implications for those of us who are in Christ's kingdom, who belong to the king, who will set up his kingdom. I said it this way earlier. Jesus Christ is the greatest king of the greatest kingdom. The kingdom is temporarily postponed in its timing. It is divine divine in its source. It is invaluable in its worth. It is relentless in its judgment. And it is essential for spreading. Jesus Christ came to earth in his first advent to present himself as the king of kings, the king to Israel. And they rejected him. And so that offer was put on temporary hold. But he will still fulfill his promises. He will provide blessings to those who are citizens of his kingdom in the interim until one day the king will reign on his throne in Israel. Oh, brothers, let us be comforted that the king has come, the king reigns, and the king is coming. Father, thank you for these truths about the kingdom of our great Savior. These truths about the one who is king, the one who came as king, presenting the heavenly kingdom, and the one who will reign as king on his heavenly throne, on his kingly throne that emanates from heaven. Father, thank you for this wonderful king who happens also to be our glorious savior. Might we find rest, comfort, and joy in Him because He is our King. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.